Hello, and welcome to Bostonian Rap. My name is Rachel Meiselman. You are listening to me on WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston. This is Boston's community radio station. Before we get right into today's show, you know the drill. We're going to go to a quick disclaimer. Uh, And then, yes, once we come back, we're going to just dive right on in without any kind of delay. The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. Hello, and welcome back to Bostonian Rap. Again, my name is Rachel Meiselman, and you are listening to me on WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston, Boston's community radio station. So there's so much to talk about now. Uh, Last week's show, of course, uh, focused exclusively on uh, the war in Israel, anti-Semitism, and the parties that are carrying out a genocidal mission against Israel. And really against Jews everywhere. But the the focus, of course, is Israel. But the ultimate goal, let let me be very careful how I phrase my words. The ultimate goal of Hamas is to, yes, eradicate the state of Israel, but its leadership wants to wipe out Jews everywhere. So let us be absolutely clear. This has nothing to do with any kind of occupation. That's a narrative that has been put forth, that has been strenuously defended because it is the cover for the murderous thugs that operate and run Hamas. So I talked about that, all of that, at length, um, and I had, I was very fortunate to have someone who's extremely knowledgeable, who, someone who does know how to exercise objectivity and actually very much relies upon it because he wants to be taken seriously in his work, Dexter Van Zyle. Uh, Some of you know that those of you who've been following me for a while know that I've had him on my show uh, a number of times in the past. He's a wonderful person, and he he tries to do a lot of good. He, He stands up to bigotry in, in some of its ugliest forms. And what I mean by that is, you know, there have been instances where people have been physically intimidating and toward Dexter, and, and he has not backed down. He's, he's very brave. Um, 
morally and intellectually and, and, and of course, otherwise. So I was very happy to have him on my show because I don't want any discussion that I'm engaged in that focuses on Israel and anti-Semitism. I don't want it to devolve into the Israelis versus the Palestinians because that's not what any of this is. It's just, it's not what is going on. And so I am going to devote part of the show to talking about that. And I'm going to pick up some points that I had broached some aspects of, of this of this uh, discussion that I had broached with Dexter because I think that uh, these are points that deserve a lot more attention. I'm also going to talk about politics. <laughs> so some of you at home are like saying to yourselves, well, of course she is. Um, but I'm going to talk about just really how dirty and seedy and really kind of scummy politics can sometimes be. And I'm going to talk about Democrats and Republicans because let's not think for a minute that the letter after one's name determines one's character or one's ability to help others and and to do good. We've fallen, I think, entirely too easy in this day and age of vilifying the other, right? And it's so it's very polarized in politics. I mean, I think just in general, but uh, it, 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 I think it is particularly obvious, evident uh, in the political realm. You know, people people take sides, people take positions, and honestly, sometimes it's less about people believing in and believing the positions that they take, and it's more about just being right. So that's it's disturbing. <laughs> it's unfortunate because it means that a lot of conversations are not had. A lot of people are not heard. And a lot of people, I don't know, they they just, they end up doing more harm than good. They really do. So let me just start off by talking about anti-Semitism before I even get to talking about the war in well, the war between Israel and Hamas, because it's not between Israel and the Palestinians. It's just not. It's between Israel and Hamas, period. That's what it is. But before we can get there, we need to talk about anti-Semitism. And I think one of the big problems today is that our discussions about bigotry in general are founded on bigotry. They're founded on bigoted beliefs, bigoted ideas. And so when the discussions themselves take place, it doesn't yield any kind of fruit 
oh, maybe rotten fruit, but it doesn't yield anything that's positive and substantive. It doesn't yield anything that can move us forward as a society or a community or a neighborhood or a municipality or a state. It's just, at some point, we just really, we've lost our way. We've lost the ability to think critically. We've lost not the ability, but the desire to listen to others. I have posted a few times on social media uh, a TED Talk from Celeste Headley, and I absolutely love her. So she, she interviews all kinds of people. Um, you could maybe call her a bit of a strategist uh, of some sort, you know, I don't really, I wouldn't really call her a political strategist, but uh, certainly policy, um, you know, she has, I think, contributed to trying to make space, trying to move things around so that there are different currents of thought. She's very, very interesting. She's a very, very interesting woman. And if you listen to this one particular TED Talk from her, I think she's only done, well, maybe she's actually, I have to look to see if she's done others, but there's, I know there's at least one, obviously, and it focuses on how to have a good conversation. And it's just, it's dynamite. It's it's not about, as she says, cocking your head to one side and, and trying to feign uh, interest. It, it's not about adopting any other kind of uh, body language. You know, she essentially says that if you're there, you're there. If you're present, you're present. So you don't really have to do anything to, to convey uh, your interest and your investment, if you will, in the conversation at him. And I, I, I really, I, I, you know, when I was a teacher, I highly recommended this to my students. And I, you know, really enjoyed the opportunity, which is probably why I so often did uh, lessons I built my lesson plans around this TED Talk because it, it gave me an opportunity to watch it again. And, and it just, it never, it's never boring. It's, it's never, oh yeah, so now she's going to say, you no, know, it's just, it always resonates so very strongly. If you want to have a good conversation, it's not about what you say, that's for darn sure, and it's not even about what you do apart from listening. Listening is so, 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 so important. And we just, we don't, we don't have any desire to do that anymore. And you see that with our Boston City Council. It's just <laughs> a method of mile. Let's talk about that. Now, I have been very critical of a lot of Boston politicians because, you know, it doesn't really 
do anything really at this point to talk about methanol mile unless there's a plan. If there's no plan, then why are you talking? And I'll I'll maybe unpack this a little bit further, but I, you know, went to City Hall not too long ago. And it was not too long before there was an announcement that there was a, a hearing on Method Mile, and it was a day before another hearing. And the first hearing, which was called by uh, Boston City Councilor Erin Murphy, it focused on the addicts. And I remember being very angry because when I went to Boston City Hall, I wanted there to be a hearing on the drug situation in Boston in general. And beyond that, I wanted there to be a discussion on what I call the ricochet effects. And that information was all taken. It was passed on to Councilor Murphy. And I don't blame the person or the people who convey that information to uh, Councilor Murphy. I blame Councilor Murphy. I really do. Because she took that information and it made it something that she feels comfortable talking about. And then engaged in political theater because a lot of her colleagues did not go. And my pushback is, well, if Councilor Murphy had something to say, if she had a plan, if she even had an idea of her own to address Method Mile, maybe it would have been in the interest of her colleagues to attend the meeting. But if someone goes to City Hall, a constituent, and has real concerns, for those concerns to be taken and then turned into something completely different, only because I can only speculate, but I'm going to start with Councilor Murphy not being able to talk about Method Mile beyond, you know, certain she can't go outside a certain parameter, which is shameful, by the way, given her standing committee assignment. She's the chair of the committee that addresses addiction and recovery. But, you know, certainly that that's that's something that I would, would assume. And, and I don't think that I would be uh, going out on a limb making that assumption, given that she has not been able to produce a single plan or a single idea to move to at least move the discussion on that area forward. Okay. She hasn't even really been able to talk well, not hasn't really been able. She hasn't been able to talk about the drug situation in general in Boston. So it's just <laughs> it's it, I you know, I came away from that just very frustrated upset, 
turned off. But it's, it's a situation of people not listening. People don't want to listen. People want to talk. And that's what she did when her colleagues didn't show up to what was essentially political theater and good for them, regardless of what I might think of some of them, good for them for not participating in the dog and pony show. She talked. That's what she feels comfortable doing, talking. Because then the focus is on her. And let's be clear, Erin Murphy isn't unique. Boston City Council, Erin Murphy is not unique. A lot of people, it's about talking, what they think, what they heard, what they understand. And it's significantly a lot less about what they heard. And conveying different perspectives and conveying different concerns. And so when you take that kind of mindset where it's me, 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 listen to me, 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 I'm not going to listen to you, 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 you. And then you think about bigotry of different kinds, it makes a bad situation, I think, even worse. Don't, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to engage in hyperbole. But I think I, I feel, when I say I feel, I believe that people are less tolerant now than when I was growing up. You know, I came of age in the 80s. In the 70s, people were just recovering from the civil rights movement. When my parents got married, it was before the Loving decision, the Supreme Court Loving decision. It was, I mean, my family background, uh, when I came of age, it, it wasn't... It, it, you know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And sometimes, speaking of listening, what I heard, because I, you know, I've always tried to listen. And so what some of the things I heard, it wasn't easy to hear. Because sometimes it could be hateful. And sometimes it was a little too frank. Notwithstanding all that, I believe that we were more open-minded then. I do. Certainly, if you want to talk about anti-Semitism, it certainly wasn't politicized. It wasn't used as a cudgel to beat our political opponents over the head, over their heads, it, it, was, it was something that was very bad. 
And it was something that we could all coalesce around in our condemnation of it. But somewhere along the way, people, again, wanting to be heard rather than hearing, (laughs) you know, they want to talk rather than listen, you know, they started talking about how the only people who can be the victims of bigotry are the people who don't have power. And... I agree with that to a certain extent, but we have to qualify it. And then the other problem I had with that is that the people who have power and the people who don't, those those groups never changed. And so we had, we have People of color who are always the victim. They themselves cannot be racist. They themselves cannot be anti-Semitic. They themselves cannot be hateful in any way, or shape, or form. And my problem with that is that people are people. And power is, is something that can be objectively defined as well as subjectively defined. Depends on the situation sometimes. If we talk about a king or a president or a prime minister, okay, that's objectively defining someone who has power. And we can go into detail about what that power is. But sometimes we can be talking about a situation where someone has a job. Let's say you really, really, really need to get into a building. And the doorman happens to be a person of color and you're white. And that doorman can either say yes or no. That person has power in that moment. And that's just one example of how power can actually be subjective in its meaning, in its sense, in the sense of the word, as well as being objective. But to get back to my point of how the groups that were on the receiving end of bigotry and the ones that were the perpetrators, that never, or that has never changed. Those groups are somehow immutable. And most of society bought into it. That's right. Most of society bought into it. And so people have in their heads that Jewish people are all white. Well, I'm not all white. (laughs) I'm mixed race. But I'm not white. I don't consider myself white. I don't consider myself black. I'm mixed race. And I'm Jewish. And there happen to be Jews of color in different parts of the world, in different countries around the world. And there always have been. It's nothing new. But if people were going to embrace 
the quite frankly offensive idea of how only certain people can be downtrodden and, 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 and on the receiving end of abuse and how only others can be the perpetrators of the abuse, well then, I guess it was all the more important that people decide what different groups are. So if you're Irish, you're this color. If you're Italian, you're this color. If you're Jewish, you're this color, and so on and so forth. If you're Greek, you're this color, and so on and so forth. If you're Syrian, if you're Cambodian, if you know, so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so... Take that philosophy and apply it to the Middle East. And so what's interesting is that if you compare in some circles Arab Muslims to Muslims who are may also be of color, or who uh, uh, let me rewind. You might have Arabs who have fairer skin. You might have Arabs of color. If you compare them with um, non-Arab Muslims who might also be of color, there we go. I I, I got it right, but I just have to, you know, because this isn't, again, I want to choose my words carefully, and, and, I, and I'm talking about something that's, I think, very complex. There, there have been a lot of mental gymnastics to get to where we are today, and we're not in a good place. Right. So if you take, even if you take, why don't I put that to one side, what I just said? And why don't I just look at Arabs who might be of color, Arab Muslims, and non Arab Muslims who are also of color? If you look at the continent of Africa, you know, often, certainly when I was in France, because you have because of the colonial history, you have Africans from different parts of the continent in France. They might study in France. They might come to France to work. They might become, uh, I don't know, per, you know, our equivalent of permanent residents. They might become citizens. Uh, you know, but the point is, is that you have a lot of people of African descent uh, from different parts of the continent in France. And I, I mean— there were some people who were very candid in how they described, uh, you know, Africa. So the Arabs were white. <laughs> and then, you know, they talked about the part of Africa where the where you didn't have Arabs or you had, you know, I'm sure, I mean, there are Arabs throughout the continent, <laughs> throughout the world, but uh, but where it was mostly thought to be, or it is, it was, it still is, um, people who are not of Arabic descent, that was considered black Africa. Interesting, right? But then when you look at what's going on between Israel the fighting between Israel and Hamas and Israel and Fatah, but Fatah, excuse me, is different, not ideal. <laughs> I still don't like uh, Fatah, but it's, 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 
it's somewhat of a different beast, and I'll talk about that group ruling the West Bank at another point in time. But I, I want to talk about Hamas tonight. Suddenly, the Arabs are now people of color. Okay, so context is so important. And the same people who might have said that Arabs are white Africans, you know, if they're from Morocco, if they're from Tunisia, Algeria, or maybe even Libya, are the same people who are going to talk about Palestinians being people of color. And despite the fact that they're Jews of all different colors from all over the world in Israel— and that you have Arab Israelis, Israeli Arabs, and you have uh, Druze and just all these different po- populations, Bedouins. It's, it's so incredibly diverse. So incredibly diverse. Somehow Israel is just white. It's just a bunch of white people. And so we come back to this idea about how only certain people can be oppressors, and that's the white people. And only certain people can be oppressed, and those are people of color, the Palestinians. And it's just... It's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's absolutely incredible because when you, when you think along those lines, you're saying that some people, no matter who they, no matter what they do, rather, no matter what they think, no matter what their heart is, they're somehow bad because they're white. Even if they don't know it, they're racist. It might be on some unconscious level, but they're racist. Isn't that something? And then you have people of color that are always the victim, that can never be hateful themselves, no matter what they say or do. But I want to say beyond applying this twisted, perverse way of seeing the world to the ongoing, what were the ongoing, quite frankly, savage hostilities between Israel and Hamas, the savagery that Hamas was carrying out against Israel, uh, it's, and now it's, you know, of course, a war. It's also, I'm going to say the reason why people don't take the idea of anti-Semitism seriously. And a lot of people don't. They just simply don't. And it's disgusting. It's morally and intellectually repugnant. But it's this idea that because Jews are all white, which, again, we know is not true, but because, you know, people want to insist on, you know, saying and thinking and and. and, and pushing the ideas that Jews are all white and they're all successful and they're all rich, that they can't be the victims of hate.
again, I want to say that anyone can be the victim of hatred. Anyone can be the perpetrator, the purveyor of hatred. Now, are some people maybe more likely to be victims of hatred? Well, it depends on where they are, and I would say yes. Do some people experience more bigotry than others? Certainly. But this bogus, this absolutely disgustingly bogus idea that only certain people can be victims and and the others are all just oppressors, it has been an excuse not to act in the face of horrible, horrible bigotry. Because there have been all kinds of attacks against Jewish people. Right right here in Massachusetts, right here in Boston, both verbal and physical. And one thing that makes me happy is that what I'm seeing for maybe the first time in my lifetime is that Jews are fighting back. They're saying, wait a minute. That's not right. That's anti-Semitic. And then if someone pushes back and rolls his or her eyes, oh, you think everyone's anti-Semitic. Oh, the Jews, oh, so much anti-Semitism. We push back, rightfully so, against that too. I think this is a defining moment, and I think a lot of people don't really quite understand that. They don't quite understand that there has been a seismic shift. After this, we cannot go back to the way we were. October 7th represented the biggest the worst, the most gruesome attack against the Jewish people resulting in the most fatalities that we have suffered since the Holocaust. People that had previously, I am sure, I know, who have been on the political left and who have maybe adopted a more conciliatory tone, you know, in the eyes of, uh, of some people, they're, they, they are saying, no, uh-uh, mm-mm. Hamas has to be completely dismantled. Certainly not going to get any arguments from me. But I think it's more than that. We have to confront the bigotry on campus, campuses. I don't normally share this, but I went to Harvard. I am involved with Harvard. I am an, I am an, an active alumna. And some of the things that I have heard about, the things that I've seen taking place have disgusted me. And it's time that we confront 
the bigotry. Certainly fight for Israel. Certainly defend her against the attacks of people that would cry for the Palestinians whom Hamas doesn't care anything about either. But these same people would not say anything about attacks anywhere else. Because they justify the brutality, the terrorism that Israelis are faced with all the time by pushing the bogus narrative, well, it's the Palestinians, and Israel's an apartheid state, and Israel, it's actually Israel that's carrying out genocide. Anyone who knows what genocide actually is knows that that's, that's laughable. At best. And I suppose I can talk all about that <laughs> at another time and place. Uh, that can be for another show. But people don't want, those same people don't want to condemn attacks right here in the United States. You know, let's say, heaven forbid, but a seven-year-old Jewish kid is, is verbally taunt, is, is taunted and horrible things are said to him or her. What did that child do to deserve that hatred? Are people really going to talk about the situation in the Middle East to justify the abuse of a child? Well, some people do. If I'm walking down the street and someone says something to me, why, why, don't, why don't we put hypotheticals to one side? I, I can use an actual example. I, when I lived in France, I remember walking down the street one time and I had a Star of David on. A gentleman that I knew was Arab, he was throwing rocks at me. I've never uttered a single <laughs> bigoted word about Arab Muslims, and you're not going to hear me. My family hasn't done it either. I have family in Israel. They have Arab Muslims for neighbors. And they get along, and they live in peace, and there's respect. My uncle is from Africa. His family spoke Arabic before they spoke Hebrew because... They're from Egypt. But shortly after my uncle's birth, they, they had to flee Egypt. They settled in Israel, and that's where my uncle was raised. But it's just, it's, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, what could I have possibly done? This person didn't know my heart. But the justification, well, you know, what's going on in the Middle East? Well, what did I do? 
And if you do talk about the Middle East, what is it that an Israeli could have done that warrants the kidnapping of infants, the kidnapping of the elderly, kidnapping of anybody, the murder, burning people alive, rape? Why are we making excuses for this? And so the seismic shift that I'm talking about, it's, it's, it's happening. And unfortunately, sadly, I say this very sadly, there have been splits in the Jewish community where some Jews, their politics are more important than the people, our people. And that's very sad to me. But like I said, there were also Jews who were certainly more aligned with the political left and they see what's going on and there's been a shift. Every day they wake up and they want to do good wherever they can, wherever they may, just like me and I'm on the political right. But there's this idea that we deserve respect too. We deserve to live with dignity. We don't deserve to walk down a street in fear for our physical safety. And our brothers and sisters in Israel don't deserve to be fighting off genocidal, murderous thugs that want us gone for no other reason than that we're Jews. So again, I, you know, I get back to my, you know, I try to talk about how it's funny how context really changes things. And, and like I said, you know, you can have some Arabs, Arab Muslims uh, who might be of color, or they might not be of color. And then you have um, Muslims that are non-Arab and they might be of color, or they, um, they might be of color, they might not be, but it's, you know, any way you kind of break it up, there's going to be a hierarchy. There's going to be a hierarchy. Um, and and like I said, you know, you know, obviously not all Arab Muslims think all like this and, you know, not all non-Arab Muslims uh you know, ascribe to this kind of, this mindset either. But, you know, you have a situation where, you know, if you're looking at Africa, it's like, okay, you have white Africa and you have black Africa. I mean, it's it's just, I remember learning about that when I was in France, learning about it, that is, learning about how people talked about Africa. And I remember thinking, my gosh, that's crazy. But, you know, obviously, not everyone who came from the different parts of Africa thought like that, and they thought it was as as offensive as I did. But it's just to say that that attitude existed. Um, But I do think there's a hierarchy. And and to be fair... um, it's an unfortunate thing. Human beings are very tribal. Um, and hierarchy is a thing. <laughs> and it could be based on race and ethnicity or faith. 
It could be based on money. It could be based on um, job profession. I mean, people are tribal, and unfortunately and sadly, they're always looking for differences. But the particular people who ascribe to this ridiculous, insulting way of thinking, like I said, those are the same people that if you go to the Middle East— Suddenly, Arabs are people of color. And then, as I said, Jews are white and, uh, you know, all Israel's all Jewish and it's all white. And it's, and you know, and it's just, it's sad. It's, when you think about the lengths that people will go to justify atrocities and bigotry, and hatred. It's getting a little emotional here. Sorry. It's just, it's really hard. It's really hard. So I'm going to end this uh, particularly long segment, um, but it was worth, worth every minute. And I'll continue to talk about Israel, but I pray for Israel's victory. I pray for the return of the hostages. I pray for both Israelis and Palestinians who have lost loved ones and friends and colleagues. And I pray for the day where Hamas is completely dismantled. And I I pray for two parties, uh, I keep on saying two parties, two states, uh, where you have Israel next to Palestine and Uh, Israelis and Palestinians can live in peace without terrorists, without the woke uber left, without the good old-fashioned anti-Semite, wherever he may be in the political spectrum, uh, using this conflict to justify uh, their hatred of my people. So, I want to move on to talk about, I have a few minutes left in the show, so I can still get in uh, a little something-something about politics. And I very recently put up on Twitter, and you can find me and Bostonian Rap on Twitter uh, under my uh, my name, Rachel Meiselman, written as one word, and then Bostonian Rap, written as one word. So I am active on Twitter. I'm sorry, X. <laughs> and I'm also active on Facebook and uh, and Instagram. But Instagram is just my name. So if you want to know more about what I think, <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty much telling you what I think <laughs> every time you listen to the show. But if you want to see more, uh, check it out. Um, I'm not, it's not a call to action. I'm not urging you to do anything. I'm just providing information. Um, but let's talk about uh, politics. You know, let's let's get in some good discussion about that. I, you know, when I ran for office, that was hard. That was hard, and I would say that I'm always going to respect people that stand up to run because. You know, I'm just speaking generally. I mean, of course, I might meet someone saying, you know, I think you're kind of a jerk. So, you know, peace out. But, <laughs> but for the most part, I, uh, I, 
you know, I have so much respect for people that run for office because it's so, so, so hard. It's so hard to put yourself out there. It really is. You know, it's like, okay, so what do y'all think of me? Boo! Oh, okay, now I'll just go back. <laughs> I'll just go back inside my house and dig a hole and jump into it. <laughs> it's it's hard. It's very, very hard to run for office. Um, but it's it's an incredible feeling in that you really get to meet people, the people, and you hear so many inspiring stories and you meet so many people that oh my goodness gracious it's it's re it's reinvigorating and it just it, it gives you purpose and you say to yourself ah this is why i'm running because i can make a difference and it's just it's 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 incredible. It's an incredible feeling. But it's but you know you juxtapose that with the feelings that I just described. But when I ran for office in twenty twenty, uh, it it was more than that. I was running um, to take on Ayanna Presley as a Republican in the bluest congressional district in a deep blue state. Now. People vote blue, but I don't think they necessarily think blue. And I think that my run proved that to a certain extent. Um, you know, unfortunately, it didn't, you know, it didn't result in, in success in terms of number of votes, you know, in, in enabling me to get on the ballot. But, you know, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> you know, I the number of votes I got, it was, you know, those people, I will always, I, I, I always say this, I'll always be grateful to them for seeing through all the smoke and the mirrors and the noise and the dog and pony show and everything and giving me a chance. And, you know, I'm sorry that there weren't like a few more thousand like them. Um you know, but, you know, just unfortunately, it just, I got the results of a writing candidate that had no backing, and it was, it was hard. It was hard. Um, but I feel like in terms of the messages that I try to put out and the ideas that I had and the platform that I had, I think I made a difference. Um, I think I contributed to different conversations that are still going on, and that will be going on for quite some time. But I also, you know, I did something else. I I spoke out about corruption. And I said that the former chairman, not the current chairman, Chairman Carnevale, not her, but the former chairman, Jim Lyons, I I said, look, <laughs> some funny business going on, and I'm not going to recap on tonight's show. I can talk about it maybe more at length at a, you know, another time, another show. Um, but I said there were issues with campaign finance. I said this repeatedly. Um, the way Jim Lyons moved, the way he ran things. And people weren't really listening. We saw just now the news broke um, 
that there was a settlement made with two Republican politicians and, you know, the mass GOP, there were settlements made and they were quite sizable. Now, I'm not bringing this up because I'm happy to report this because I'm not. And, you know, I know people who support these politicians and so these elected officials. So I don't want this 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 bit here to become um, a bashing session. And I wish these two elected officials, husband and wife and, you know, their family, I wish them all well. It's just, it's regretfully, um, there were, were there were practices that were engaged in that didn't do anybody any favors. And that's the way I'm going to phrase it. But I said the way that the party was being run, that there were issues. I said that. And I think that what I'll say on this, and again, the elected officials, I, you know, I wish them and their families well. I don't wish them ill. I wish that, <sighs> I wish different decisions had been made. Um, but the purpose of, of me talking about this is just to say that, unfortunately, sometimes in politics, people make really, really bad decisions. Uh, or they they make unwise alliances, or they choose to give someone unwisely um, their ears. And I think that, you know, if the same judgment were used in the private sector, the consequences would be much, much different. And so I think that... I think that politics allows people to believe that they're untouchable. And I think because, because things in general operate differently. And then, of course, you have a lot of Democrats uh, engaged in a lot of really bad behavior, too. And I'll, I'll be talking about that as well. But it, the idea is that you have a lot of people claiming expenses, engaging in an activity, uh, making promises, doing little winks here and there. And and it's just in the private sector it wouldn't be allowed. In in politics, people, like I said, think they're untouchable. But I'm going to talk more about that as well as the situation in in Israel um, next week. But that's all I have time for. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, I look forward to hanging out with you next week. The preceding commentary does not reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass. 02119, attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, call WBCA at 617 3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.